tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. On our last episode, we told you about one of the opulent final meals that was held on the famous unsinkable ship, the Titanic, as she made her way across the Atlantic from England to New York City. This week, we're sticking with the transportation theme. But instead of transatlantic ocean liners, we're bringing you the stories of the meals that won America's notoriously Wild West. Before Starbucks before McDonald's, before any of the other countless chains that appear in gas station strip malls or on highway billboards from Maine to Oregon, there was one brand that carved a name for itself in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, featuring fresh pots of coffee, creamy mashed potatoes, and the best steak west of Dodge City. This chain of restaurants didn't rely on highways or cars, but on the first truly transcontinental way of seeing the United States. The railroad. As rail began to crisscross the U.S. in the late 19th century, Americans began to associate one name in particular with quality food and, more importantly, quality service wherever the rail lines went. And that name was Harvey. As in Fred Harvey and his famous Harvey Girls. Rail travel today might not have the most luxurious of connotations. Unless you're lucky enough to be able to afford traveling along the Orient Express or one of a handful of high-end specialty train services still in operation, most of us are stuck in economy, with few, if any, luxuries on board. True, you can still usually get a sandwich and, if you're so inclined, maybe a glass of wine or beer on the rails. But train travel these days is pretty bare bones, and in North America in particular. Although rail is still a major way to get freight from Albany, New York to Berkeley, California, 
It's long been assumed that passenger train travel has been going the way of the dodo, particularly when you compare it to folks traveling across the U.S. by car or even plane. But don't bury American train travel just yet. From 2001 to 2013, Amtrak witnessed a unprecedented 31% increase in ridership. Although train travel can't compete, obviously, with the speed of a jet, when you add in all those long lines at the airport, from check-in to security to even waiting to board, all of a sudden, train travel, where you can often hop on board in 10 minutes flat, doesn't seem so onerous. And then there's the baggage. You can take as many suitcases as you can carry onto a train. No fees attached. There are no restrictions on liquids, so you can take on your water bottle or coffee cup. And heck, you can keep your shoes on when you go through security. If there even is security, that is. And with states like California, among some others, increasingly sniffing around the idea of high-speed rail, train travel might soon get a whole lot faster in the U.S. And recently, rail companies all over the world have begun to capitalize on the nostalgia we often associate with train travel. For example, you can take a version of Harry Potter's Hogwarts Express in Scotland, the lavishly appointed Orient Express, one of the oldest lines in existence, still runs, albeit on a shorter trip between London and Venice. This particular train journey will set you back around 5,000 pounds, but includes champagne, butler service, all the perks of luxury travel. You can ride the blue train in South Africa, complete with your own personal butler and 24-hour-a-day available snacks for under $1,000. And Canada's appropriately called Canadian train service runs between Toronto and Vancouver. Now, this four-day trip takes you across the plains and the Rockies and features a rotating menu of food to highlight the produce of each location you pass through. Not too bad, right? Because when you're on a train for more than a day, food does become something of an issue. Thankfully, most airplane journeys don't last more than 24 hours. At least, not without a layover. And it's a good thing, as who would want airplane food for that long? But what about a four-day trip to Vancouver or a week-long trip to Moscow? All of a sudden, food becomes a much bigger deal. And this was no different back in the days before the invention of the airplane or the car. Folks who relied on America's railroads were in desperate need of food as they traveled across the country. And this was before you were able to turn off the turnpike in search of those golden arches or in and outs or even the TGI Fridays that scatter any of the highway exits stretching from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. Travelers often had to rely on the railroads themselves to provide food. And it wasn't always a rosy picture. But if you're of a certain generation who remember traveling through the U.S. in the 1950s or even earlier, you might remember that you didn't necessarily worry about eating on the railroad. You might even have looked forward to it, especially when it meant stopping at a Harvey house with its famous Harvey girls. In fact, at one point in time, America was so in love with this particular railroad restaurant chain, there was an entire MGM movie musical extravaganza dedicated to it. 
And in terms of early 20th century USA, there really was no higher praise. Back in Ohio, where I come from, I've done a lot of dreaming and I've traveled some, but I never thought I'd see the day when I ever took a ride on the Santa Fe. What a take a ride on the Santa Fe. Yes, dear listeners, that voice is Judy Garland, singing the hit number from the 1946 MGM classic, Harvey Girls. This song, which took its name from the famous Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, was also the hit number on radio airwaves that year. Yes, a song dedicated entirely to the glory of traveling by rail was number one in the Billboard charts. Now, the plot of the movie Harvey Girls features old Judy as a young Harvey girl. Well, actually, she starts out as a mail-order bride, but let's not get bogged down in the details. Finding herself in the dusty, wild west town of Sandrock, she soon joins up with the Harvey girls who are opening up one of their famous Harvey houses, a restaurant dedicated to serving the, well as you might have guessed from the song, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. This rail line, which was often known simply as the Santa Fe, was the home base of Harvey Houses during the 1880s and 1890s, where at one point, over 80 different Harvey House restaurants were providing weary rail travelers with quality food and quality service on their trip through the American West. Now, by the mid-1940s, when Miss Garland was heading up the cast of Harvey Girls, the Harvey House was a brand associated with quality food for the nation's railroads. And the movie helped to commemorate the early days of this institution, during the 1890s, when the Harvey Girls themselves were just entering the picture. Even before they became famous for their black-and-white uniform or their uncanny ability to know your drink order, the Harvey name was already a famous one. You see, by the 1890s, Fred Harvey, the founder of the Harvey House, had already been in the railroad food industry for 20 years. But what exactly made Harvey such a revolutionary? Judging by railroad food today, it wouldn't be much to crow about stale sandwiches or overpriced boxed wine. But that would be selling Fred Harvey way too short. Harvey was single-handedly responsible for creating an image of elegance, style, and refinement with railroad dining in America. Not in the well-established rail lines of the East Coast. No, no. Harvey arguably helped to bring fine dining to America's Wild West. And for just such a career... We might say Fred Harvey was lucky enough to be born at the right time, if not the right place. Although born and raised in England, Harvey had emigrated to the U.S. in the 1850s. And at the time, railroads were just beginning to crisscross the western U.S., allowing Americans to travel beyond the stagecoach or the riverboat and explore all that vast territory that lay beyond the Mississippi River. 
by the 1870s, you could hop on a train in Massachusetts and jump off in California. Railroads were now truly transcontinental. But just because you weren't seeing the country from the back of a covered wagon or a pony didn't mean you were traveling in style. If you think modern air travel is bad and cramped, consider the average trip on a 19th century American railroad. This was no Orient Express. Trips could take days, if not weeks, and people were often crammed into tight sleeping bunks. That is, if they got a bunk at all. And the food was notoriously abysmal. You either had to plan ahead and bring your own provisions, or subject your stomach to the few meager offerings along the way. Now, trains would often need to stop somewhere along the rail line, but rail passengers would only have as much time as it took to refuel the train to get a bite to eat. That meant they were forced to stick close to the train and rely on either the occasional sandwich or drink vendor that walked along the train selling directly to the passengers, or whatever food was offered at the train depot itself. Not that the depot was considered the better option. As the New York Times put it in 1857, If there is any word in the English language more shamefully misused than another, it is the word refreshment as applied to the hurry-scurry of eating and drinking at railroad stations. Directors of railroads appear to have an idea that travelers are destitute of stomach that eating and drinking are not at all necessary to human beings bound on long journeys. It is expected that three or four hundred men, women, and children can be whirled half a day over a dusty road with hot cinders flying in their faces, and then, when they approach a station and are dying of weariness, hunger, and thirst, that they shall rush helter-skelter into a dismal long room and dispatch a supper, breakfast, or dinner in 15 minutes. Obviously, food was a railroad riddle yet to be solved. Since railroad companies hadn't figured out a way to allow passengers to move between the carriages while the train was moving, no dining or bar car back in those days, I'm afraid, the best railroad companies could do was to provide meager sustenance for travelers every time the train stopped. But few companies were actually in the business of serving what might be generously called good food. For them, it was enough of a perk that they were serving food at all. Rail companies were focused on things like arrival and departure times, not tea time. But that was all before they met Fred Harvey. Since moving to the U.S., he had witnessed the rise of the railroad firsthand. From his home in St. Louis, Missouri, the gateway to the American West, he had watched the city transform with the arrival of rail. A born entrepreneur, Harvey's first job in America had been cleaning pots in a New York restaurant, and he had watched and learned from the best. His small restaurant in downtown St. Louis had been a roaring success, and it introduced Harvey to the trials and travails of the food industry. But he knew railroads were the future. And Harvey wasn't wrong. By the 1860s and 1870s, rail companies large and small were battling to lay track and to establish their service as the most reliable, the fastest, and of course, the safest. 
companies were always on the lookout for a way to distinguish themselves from the competition. If you couldn't claim the longest track, you could offer the best on-time arrival. If you couldn't guarantee arrival times, offer the safest or most comfortable ride around. Any new idea to lure in more customers and more capital was always welcome. Take George Pullman, for example, another man who was profiting from the railroad boom of America right around the same time as Harvey. Pullman's own experiences on the rail had convinced him that a better, more luxurious way to travel was the future. By the late 1850s, he was selling his soon-to-be-famous Pullman cars to any railroad interested. Complete with marble countertops, chandeliers, and lush carpeting, as well as the stunning new feature of offering bathrooms on board. I told you this wasn't the Orient Express. Railroads that could offer Pullman's luxury cars were soon falling over themselves to feature them on their rail lines. But even Pullman couldn't figure out how to feed a hungry rail-riding public. Sure, he could introduce luxurious restaurant cars. He had even named one or two of them after the famous New York restaurant Delmonico's. But... Without a way to travel between cars while the train was moving, Pullman's dining cars were more often than not seen as an unneeded extravagance, especially on long-distance trips where space was key. But thankfully, Harvey had placed himself in the perfect position to solve that very problem. After working for various railroads, first in Missouri and then in Kansas, he was able to convince the superintendent of a small local railroad to give them a shot in improving their company's food. And so in 1876, he, along with some help from his wife and kids, took over the lunchroom at the train depot in Topeka, Kansas. As things go, it was a pretty small trial. The second-story lunchroom at the train depot barely sat ten people. Every day, five trains stopped at Topeka, each time unloading passengers desperate for meals and the railroad's top brass had their offices right across the street from Harvey's lunchroom. If Harvey was looking for an opportunity to impress, this was it. By offering freshly brewed coffee, homemade apple pie, and simple chicken sandwiches, the Topeka lunchroom offerings may not have been champagne and caviar. But in comparison to what passengers were used to on the railroad, it may as well have been. Fast forward 10 years, and Harvey was well on his way to an empire of railroad food houses, which he, of course, had named after himself, Harvey Houses. As opposed to grimy taverns or sandwiches sold on the street, Harvey Houses prided themselves on their quality. Tablecloths and napkins had been imported from England and Ireland. Guests were served on fine crockery with delicate floral designs. But what exactly was being served on this fine crockery? Now, judging from recipe collections and occasional cookbooks found in Harvey House restaurants, the aim was classic American dishes. Now, Harvey would eventually be known for some high-class restaurants and hotels, but in his railroad eating houses, hearty, simple fare was the name of the game. From German potato salad to navy bean soup to basically macaroni and cheese. 
And recently, some of these classic recipes have been republished in the Harvey House Cookbook by George H. Foster and Peter C. Weiglin. If you're interested in cooking some of these dishes at home, we'll put a link to the book up on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. But besides the macaroni and cheese and the soup, if there were two things an eating house in the American West needed to have, it was a fine steak and an excellent cup of coffee. Two things Harvey made it his mission to supply. To meet the ever-growing demand for fine American beef, Harvey at one point was ordering 1,200 pounds of steak a week from Kansas City meatpacking firms. But who exactly was going to be serving that steak and coffee? Enter the famous Harvey Girls, which, if legends are to be believed, wasn't even Fred Harvey's idea, but that of one Tom Gable, a family friend from Leavenworth, Kansas. Fred had watched Tom grow up and eventually hired him to help run his ever-growing chain of railroad eating houses. And one day, early in 1883, Tom approached Fred Harvey with a radical idea. Now, the Harvey houses had already brought a new level of fine dining to the Wild West, with its china patterns and fine steaks. Why not now introduce another level of quote-unquote civility, as it was called, by hiring young women to be the well-trained waitstaff at the Harvey houses? It was a bold move. There was an old joke in the American West that there were no ladies west of Dodge City and no women at all west of Albuquerque. And the joke wasn't necessarily half wrong. In some of the western territories of the U.S., census numbers indicated that men frequently outnumbered women two to one. Throughout America's Midwest and East, the western territories were seen, arguably justifiably, as rough-and-tumble places. Nowhere a proper lady would want to find herself. But the plan Tom Gable was proposing could help change all that. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Harvey and Gable began to place ads for single women interested in becoming servers at the various Harvey houses as well as Harvey's recently opened hotels. The offer wasn't a bad one necessarily. Comparably good wages at almost $18 a month, as well as room, board, transportation, of course, and any tips. For many a single young woman, it was a good deal. She could quickly save money or send money back to help her family, and in the meantime, see a bit of the American West. Which is how one of the first-ever Harvey girls, 
one Minnie O'Neill, an 18-year-old from Leavenworth, Kansas, found herself on a train bound for Raton, a small town in northeastern New Mexico. Even today, Raton is not a large city, with barely 8,000 residents. But Harvey had recently opened a hotel in the town, and so now Minnie and one of a dozen other girls were bound for Raton to enter into what would eventually be known as the Harvey Service. Back in 1883, as Minnie and the girls traveled to Raton, no one was quite sure how Tom Gable's experiment would play out. Safety, of course, would be paramount for the young women, who, according to the job description, had to be single or unmarried and remain so for the duration of their contract, which was usually around six months. These young women, who Harvey insisted be known as Harvey girls rather than waitresses, would stay in a specially built dormitory attached to the hotel, where a live-in chaperone would keep a strict eye over the ladies. And we should be clear, Harvey was interested in capable restaurant servers, not eye candy. When Minnie started her work at Raton, she was provided with the now iconic Harvey girl black and white uniform, which she would be expected to wear every day for her usually 12-hour long shift. Now it was a plain, black, long woolen dress over which she wore a starched white apron. And keeping that apron clean of stains or smears was absolutely essential. Harvey girls were expected to change immediately if the apron became dirty for any reason over the course of their shift. Makeup was strictly prohibited. Chaperones would occasionally even take a damp cloth to the girls' faces to make sure no foundation or blush had been surreptitiously applied. But even with such a modest uniform and strict regulations, Harvey girls soon became famous throughout the Wild West. Music, poems, and probably more than a few love letters were directed their way. Here's just one example from 1905. I have viewed the noblest shrines in Italy and gazed upon the richest mosques of Turkey. But the fairest of all sights, it seems to me, was the Harvey girl I saw in Albuquerque. Harvey girls were soon stationed at every eating house along the Santa Fe Railroad. And as the rail expanded, so did the ranks of Harvey girls, a veritable army of black and white uniformed women serving hot coffee and steak all over the American West. And it soon became a point of pride to be in what was known as the Harvey Service. Girls who had completed a six-month contract proudly wore a silver pin indicating their service. And being a Harvey girl meant adhering to a very strict code of conduct that went beyond just making sure your apron was clean. There were rules for everything. So if you think standardized food was a product of the 20th century— Fred Harvey's rules from the 1890s might have you changing your thinking. For example, every slice of bread served at a Harvey house had to be exactly three-eighths of an inch thick. Orange juice had to be hand-squeezed, and only after it had been ordered by a customer. And then there was the infamous cup code. At Harvey houses, beverage orders were famously not written down but indicated among the servers by how a cup was positioned on the table. Each drink had its own signal. For example, if a customer wanted coffee, the cup was left in its saucer. But if they wanted milk, the cup was flipped and put next to the saucer. 
even different varieties of tea had their own signal. Depending on which way the cup's handle was pointing indicated whether the customer wanted black tea, green, or even orange pico. But of course, coffee far and away was the hallmark of the Harvey House chain. Whether you were in Leavenworth, Kansas, or Raton, New Mexico, every Harvey House you stopped at proudly served coffee shipped directly from Boston. Coffee was brewed in large batches in giant silver urns, which were pointedly and publicly emptied every two hours, so another fresh batch could be made. This kind of attention to detail made Harvey Houses an institution in the West, one that outlasted even Fred Harvey himself, who died at the age of 65 in 1901. But his children carried on the family legacy. Ford Harvey, Fred's son, became a visionary in his own right in the 20th century. It was Ford Harvey who expanded his father's business to develop not only railcar dining options, when passengers were finally able to move between cars and thus dine on board, but also spurred the wider development of tourism in the southwestern United States. Along with noted architect Mary Coulter, the Fred Harvey Company secured one of the most inaccessible but desirable spots for a hotel in all of America, the literal bottom of the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Called Phantom Ranch, the hotel, or inn, still exists today, with rooms usually selling out years in advance. Mary Coulter also designed the dazzling 1930s cocktail lounge and Harvey restaurant in Los Angeles' Union Station. Although the restaurant was closed in the late 20th century, rumor has it it's been restored and may be opening again soon serving a whole new generation of America's rail passengers. Although Judy Garland may have been singing the Harvey Girls' praises in the 1940s, by the 1950s, many of the original hotels and Harvey House restaurants were closed, and the Harvey Girls soon vanished from America's eye. But the company's ability to successfully open and manage over 100 locations as well as its uncompromising dedication to quality food and service inspired countless 20th century entrepreneurs. Walt Disney himself, the so-called king of customer service, had fond memories of dining at Harvey House restaurants when he was growing up in Missouri. And when it came time to build Disneyland, Disney made sure to include a Harvey Girl-style restaurant in Frontier Town. If you'd like to read more about Fred Harvey and the Harvey Girls, there are some great books on the subject. Beyond the cookbook that we mentioned, there's also Stephen Freed's Appetite for America, Fred Harvey and the Business of Civilizing the West One Meal at a Time, as well as Leslie Poling Kemp's Harvey Girls, The Woman Who Opened the West. We'll put links to both books up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with sound engineering by Mike Port. Music this week included work by Jazar, the Victor Herbert Orchestra, and Alonzo Yancey. Find out more about these great artists on the show notes, featured on our website. And that's all for us this week. Join us in two weeks' time with more meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.